What's up, everybody? Are you tuning in to the Challenge USA on CBS? Well, tune in to me, Tyson Apostle, as I break down each and every episode with my co-host, Amelia Wedemeyer. I'm also a contestant on the show, which gives you all the insider scoop. Amelia, how stoked are you to do this? Tyson, I'm freaking excited. I cannot wait to sit my butt down every single week to watch the show, then come here and recap it with you on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, we have the first in a two-part series on lessons from the crypto crash. Crypto, also known as Web3, also known as blockchain-based technologies, remains the weirdest space I've ever reported on. I've never learned so much about a topic where there were people I trusted roughly equally, whose intelligence I trusted roughly equally, coming to totally different positions about a single thing. I know people I consider brilliant who think that crypto is the wave of the future. I know others who are fairly positive that the bulk of this space is a giant Ponzi scheme. I know people who think that the bulk of this space is worse than a giant Ponzi scheme. Tomorrow, in part two, you're gonna hear from Packy McCormick, a fun and popular Web3 writer who spars with me about why crypto still, after a mild wipeout, could be an important tech platform. But today we hear from a wise skeptic. Molly Wood is a financial journalist turned venture capitalist. She also hosts the podcast, This Week in Startups. And today we talk about the case against crypto. I would summarize Molly's case in three main points. Number one, it is a double enemy of the environment. Crypto is an energy-intensive speculation that also pulls money and talent from climate technology. Number two, it is an unregulated bonanza of investor shenanigans. Molly explains why the very structure of crypto and crypto tokens in particular invites a kind of Ponzi scheming dynamic to this technology 
which deserves our very close attention. And number three, even if you have nice things to say about crypto, and we do have nice things to say, there's a strong case to be made that the promises and the grandiosity is wildly out of line with the actual use cases. So this is our little two-part podcast trial of crypto. Today, the prosecution. Tomorrow, the defense. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Molly Wood, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to talk to you again. I want to split our conversation into two. First, I want your impressions from the crypto peak and the crypto crash. I want to know what it was like to be in Silicon Valley when things were at their frothiest, what it was like to be in Silicon Valley when things were crashing, what happened, what mattered. And then second, I want to talk a little bit about why this is important in the first place. Is it simply as uh, straightforward as you know, a couple trillion dollars went poof? Or are there deeper lessons to be learned here about the investment climate of Silicon Valley and the future of tech and finance. Um, but first, I want you to cast your mind back to before the Matt Damon ad, before the Larry David ad, before the crash, back to September 2021. And from my perspective, Bitcoin is trading at $61,000. Sports stadiums are being renamed left and right. Uh, you got Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles. You got FTX Arena in Miami. Every morning, a new celebrity is spending a couple million dollars to acquire some ape or doodle. You're a venture capitalist. You were closer to the actual industry than I was when things were at their zaniest. What was it like at the peak? What were you thinking as things were swirling around at their most insane? So this is, I should probably preface this by saying this is not my first boom living here in Silicon Valley. I was, I moved here in 1999 for the original, you know, dot-com run-up. Um, I was here then during the, the Uber week. We work, you can't even say we work, you almost want to say we crashed immediately. Um, I was, you know, here for that run-up. I have been in a million taxi cabs with people saying I'm an app developer and they all have this kind of remarkably similar cadence, which is that even though you know perfectly well that it's a boom and that there is going to be a bust, you still have FOMO. You cannot <laughs> resist <laughs> the siren call of the boom. And so it's it's this kind of fascinating thing that just keeps happening over and over, which is like, you can tell uh, that it's a big deal because everyone is talking about it. it is the only thing other than housing prices that you talk about at every event and every dinner and every meeting you're starting i was still a journalist then so i you know your every question that you're having with your editors is how should we be covering this what should we be saying what kind of explainer should we do and yet you also want to open that coinbase account because even though you know better you still feel like there could be something here and it it's just a, it's a wave that you can't help but get carried on. So tell me how this peak and the first inning of the crash felt different than the dot-com bubble in 2000. Because immediately after prices started crashing among cryptocurrencies, you had all these problems among uh, the crypto banks, people were saying, oh, this is dot-com 2.0, it's dot-com 2.0. What did it feel like to be in it? So I think at first, 
when it was clear that there was going to be some downturn, the big question, because the dot-com, the original dot-com crash was very tightly correlated to the actual stock market. You know, these were big, huge IPOs. And so there was a lot of contagion in some ways because these were public companies that that took down public markets. And it seemed, given that crypto was a, a decentralized asset that was supposed to be sort of a parallel financial system that shouldn't impact the stock market at all, the initial feeling was like, okay, some of this stuff is going to start to drop. The, the scams are washing out. There are going to be a lot of individual bag holders, which is terrible, um, but it is most likely not going to have a lot of contagion. It's not going to affect the broader market. And I think what's so interesting is that very quickly, it became clear that actually Bitcoin price drops were moving in concert with the broader market. Mm -hmm. And it almost exposed, I think, the fact that it was actually all the same investors that, you know, the the people who were invested in BlackRock and and Ron, or Exxon, sorry, Freudian slip, um, <laughs> <laughs> were also quite clearly, there were also quite clearly a lot of institutional investors in the biggest crypto names, right? So crypto.com, certainly Coinbase, obviously, was a massive uh, hit for the venture capitalists who invested early, but it was also a huge stock market darling. And then a lot of institutional investors had pretty obviously piled into Bitcoin. So I think for me, the surprise was seeing that exact correlation, that in fact, it was pretty centralized as you know, less of a revolution and more of an asset class. And as a venture capitalist, what did you think about the amount of money that was being sucked into these projects? Like you're working in climate tech. I wonder if you considered crypto to be a sideshow, a carnival, like a waste. Or did you think, oh, no, there's a lot of money that's sloshing around in VC. This is an interesting side bet. There's obviously some bullshit. There's obviously some pure FOMO. But maybe there's the kernel of an interesting substantive idea that could bloom into a product that could be useful for some people. Where did you land as a, as, as a VC in this space? I mean, as a climate tech investor, I see all of this money in crypto as my enemy. And I actually <laughs> see crypto as almost literally my enemy right you i it was hard for me and again this is because of this very specific uh lens of somebody who's a climate tech investor watching people pour tons and tons and tons of money into something that is uh, look my job is to invest in things that are speculative but this is like speculative that lights the world even more on fire and say a little bit more about that about why crypto and the and uh, and the blockchain is bad for energy generation Right. It's a super energy intensive exploit. The process of creating coins and building the, you know, we already know that, for example, data centers are super energy intensive. If you put a bunch of computers in a building and that's what you need to process lots and lots of information, it's going to use a lot of energy. And so big companies have already been spending the last several years and decades trying to figure out how to make data centers less energy intensive, both for cost purposes and for emissions purposes. Now, you take that concept and you multiply it, you know, nearly by infinity because the process of creating, let's just say, a Bitcoin on the blockchain, and there have been improvements in the technology, but let's just start with creating a Bitcoin on the blockchain. I first got interested in and became aware of Bitcoin in, I don't know, I'm going to say 2009 or 2010. And 
I had a friend, Trent, who was mining Bitcoin. So he just had his home computer and he was creating Bitcoin and he was finding that he had to upgrade his computer more and more and more and more because he needed a faster processor. Because the process of creating a Bitcoin is that you are basically validating millions and then trillions of math problems and saying, does this thing add up? And whoever can validate these math problems the fastest will be rewarded with the creation of a coin. So it's like if you want to play Fortnite without your computer skipping, you need a fancy graphics card and you got to upgrade <laughs> your you know, motherboard and then you're going to want like a 4K monitor. And, and then Bitcoin is all of that. And it just keeps getting more and more energy intensive by design. Because the more coin there are, the more coin that are created, the more transactions there are in the blockchain. So the more math problems you have to solve, it's like an exponentially increasing curve. It's an arms race. It's an, it's it's an, an energy-intensive arms race. Well, we're going to get into the responsibility of the money being spent and invested in just a second. But I think that it's, you know, it, when you talk to people that are, let's say, more bullish on crypto than us, they'll say one of the wonderful things about this space is that it's a beautiful Petri dish for all sorts of experiments. And there's truth to this. It's true that it's a lovely Petri dish for experiments. But what your point makes very clear is that it's not a free experiment right? It's not a free mm -hmm. experiment for the planet. It's an experiment that is extremely costly in energy generation, and therefore it's an experiment whose costs are being borne by the atmosphere, right? By the oceans, right. by the biosphere. Um, there's another aspect of this that I want to get your brain on, because you're a venture capitalist, and the behavior of the venture capital community in crypto is very controversial. So there's this old model that I think a lot of people are used to when it comes to investing. It starts with a new company. A new company comes along, a VC writes them a check in exchange for equity in this new young company. That company grows, it succeeds, and after a few years, if everything goes right, it goes public, it IPOs. And after that, everybody can buy equity in that company, but only when the company files with the SEC and accepts all this regulation to protect investors. With crypto and with tokens, the model has changed a little bit. Walk me through how VC works here. A project comes along and you make an investment and the job of a VC, and I know everyone knows this, but I'm going to say it again, is to make an investment in exchange for equity in a company. That equity is not liquid. Sometimes it's not liquid for a really long time, 10 years, maybe more, because the company doesn't have an exit and you don't get your money back for a really long time. If you're, if you get 10 to 15 to 20% equity in a company that also issues a token and you're one of the early investors, you're going to get an early distribution of those tokens. And those tokens are liquid. So that even if they're issued and you have a lockup period, like maybe you can't sell your token for six months or a year or three years, eventually you can sell your tokens. And if your bet is that this company is going to become a really big deal, and it does, then even if you don't get your 20% equity as liquid money for a decade, you could get a lot of money from the fact that you might have been issued 30 or 40% of all the tokens in existence when this project launched, and you can sell that. So just as a purely like mercenary play, of course you want to make that investment. That's so interesting because these tokens, they're basically securities, like stocks, in that way. And so investors can acquire tokens, list the tokens on exchanges where the public can buy them, and then the public buys them. But now the VC or the 
people in the company, the owners of these tokens are in a position where maybe they can, you know, talk their book, boost the value of these tokens, and then sell off in a year or so, way before the company is acquired, it goes public. Uh, I mean, this is sort of a pump and dump. And I'm not saying that this kind of pump and dump is the only thing happening in crypto, but let's just say it's clearly something that can happen. Um, before we get into the crash, I don't want this episode to be purely you and I are somewhat crypto skeptical, if not extremely crypto skeptical, and then we just talk about and share schadenfreude about the crypto crash. I, I want to take a, a brief, you know, say something nice about uh, crypto web three. Um, what were the most interesting ideas that you found in this space that you still see in this space? What use cases other than buying and selling crypto and paying Matt Damon to talk about your crypto exchange do you think are the most important here? What a world where Matt Damon is going to be forever the bet noir. Poor Matt of the Damon, crypto honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I really actually do profoundly believe that Bitcoin could be hugely transformative as a currency. And why? That because I because there's so much money made in the middle of financial transactions that it ends up being massively gatekeeping. So if you think about the unbanked and the idea that without, you know, some institution standing in the way, taking 30% of the money that you're sending from one country to another, you could start to have a lot of, of economies that are born just out of it being so easy to send money back and forth. Like the are you example talking about is, the unbanked in, in America? Are you talking about the unbanked? No, 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 in, no all you know, over the world. Okay. All over the world. Like I'm saying, if you're in, if you're in, uh, I mean, Africa is such an obvious example, but it's also a really great example because like, a lot of devices and internet infrastructure have just skipped uh, Africa and everybody went straight to mobile phones. So you've got a country where everybody's on phones, but they're largely unbanked and they want to participate in international commerce, but sending money internationally is incredibly difficult and takes a long time to settle. And, uh, you know, somebody sits in between and skims money across off the top at every stop. If you can get rid of all of that and just say, I've got a wallet on my phone, and if you want to pay me for my goods, you just send it to me. And it's there instantly. It's capital I can immediately access and use. And I can sell to anybody anywhere without anybody getting in the way. Then when you look at like, you know, Jack Dorsey's weird tweet about how Bitcoin will bring about world peace, you start to imagine where he's coming from there. Because all of a sudden, anybody has the freedom to transact with no gatekeepers. That's a genuine, that's as powerful as the internet, if you think about it. Everybody can have access to in, information, all of the world's information, anywhere in the world, anytime they need it. That was really powerful. Or 4G, 4G internet access is why we have Uber and why we probably have Netflix and why we have all of these things that rely on an always-on connection that didn't exist with slower mobile speeds. So, you know, I'm I'm holding some Bitcoin because I I buy that. Yeah, it's interesting. I we had this other conversation with uh, Packy McCormick, uh, which we're going to air in a separate episode, I think. Uh, but you know, I know people that work in remittances very well. I know people that work in money transfers in Africa very well. And you know, I don't want to speak for them, but what they seem to be building is something much more like an Apple Pay Venmo for these countries than a uh, Crypto.com for these countries, because fundamentally what you need is uh, currency that you can spend at your local market. And Bitcoin is not 
a very good medium of exchange. Uh, and it may never be a very good medium of exchange. It, by, precisely because it's scarce, um, it uh, is probably always going to be extremely volatile. People are going to bet on it, I think, as if it's any kind of volatile currency like a tech stock or gold. And there's not a lot of people that are, you know, buying onions with their bullion. And so I, I, I think that you know, I, I personally think, and I know that I'm putting you in a position of trying to defend uh, crypto and then saying, you know, I don't agree with that particular defense. <laughs> I'm ready. So, I'm ready. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I understand that I'm putting you in a, a very unfair position here. Um, but it, it just seems to me that the, that the solutions for, you know, Senegal, Uganda, Ethiopia are not going to look like crypto.com. They're not going to look like Coinbase. They're not going to look like a Bitcoin remittances program. They're going to look more like Venmo, Apple Pay, for the local currency. So you're right that they're going to skip over the generation of banking institutions, potentially, but they're going to go straight to local currencies on their phone. Um, and that that is going to be more useful than uh, trying to bend Bitcoin, which is this weird, extremely volatile store of value into a medium of exchange, into something that you can like buy your lattes and onions with. I could not agree more that at this point bitcoin has become such a valuable asset class that it is going to very it's going to be really hard to make the transition to currency where i will though push back is on the idea that local currencies like we're sitting here with the world's reserve currency the dollar is stable it's now super strong globally most of the you know of the world's like of the ma the richest countries currencies are stable that is not the case all over the world. And so Bitcoin volatility, I mean, honestly, the best thing that can happen for Bitcoin is that it can settle into a pretty low price. And then we can start to talk about it as a, as a currency, or we can start to talk about the things that could enable it as a currency. It, if we assume that Bitcoin will become less volatile because it will be less attractive as a pure asset class, and we invest in the technologies that make it more usable, then I think you could sort of say, it, there's more value in transferring this thing that is transparent, that has a limited amount. No Fed can come in and just print more and more and more. You know, I mean, I think downstairs I have a, a my, my son's grandfather gave him a Zimbabwean billion, billion dollar bill. Like, that's never going to get printed in Bitcoin. Maybe one day it'll be the equivalent of a billion dollar bill and then the next day it'll only be worth $22,000. But if you assume that its volatility is going to be less than the basket of global currencies, I think there's still something there in terms of using it as a payment method. And also the government can't come in and mess with it. Yeah, and I agree. There's a lot of governments that are total assholes uh, to be uh, pretty unsophisticated about it. And I can totally understand why, especially people with lots of money that face capital controls, would want to have some of their money in a currency like Bitcoin that could be transferred internationally without the kind of capital controls that exist with the local currency. So especially when you get to sort of the upper income, when you get to sort of richer people in more unstable countries, I can understand some of the case for cryptocurrencies um, or, or or for Bitcoin replacing local currencies. But I want to move to um, the, the the crash that we're seeing right now because it actually revisits some of these issues. Um, I want to talk about a couple of different aspects of the crypto crash, and each of them have a vocabulary term that I'd love you to help us unpack. So first was the first thing that's happened is that, and this is just obvious, a bunch of cryptocurrencies crashed. Most famously, Bitcoin is down something like seventy percent since uh, its November high. And several stable coins have failed as well. What is a stable coin and why is their failure 
particularly significant. So a stablecoin is the thing that was supposed to solve the problem that we were just talking about, right? The idea that Bitcoin is so volatile that you can't count on its pricing. And so this idea of stablecoins was created, and it would be a coin, a currency, that whose value is pegged to some other currency. And that other currency could be either uh, an actual, like an existing currency, like the US dollar. It could be pegged to some kind of a commodity, or it could be pegged to another financial instrument. And as is the way of cryptocurrency, it was like, not appealing to have it be pegged to the dollar or the remedy because that's just, you know, more centralization and banking. Um, and so stable coins were created that were pegged to other cryptocurrencies. And, though you know, there's this idea of an algorithmic stable coin, which is like, I'll create this stable coin. And the most obviously famous recent example is Terra and Luna, where a stable coin was created called Terra its value was going to be pegged to this Luna coin. And the value would always be held stable by the buying and selling, the transacting of the Luna coin. And as long as enough of that happened, and also people believed that the Luna coin was a real thing, even though it had been created effectively out of thin air, like all of this had, then the whole thing would work out fine and Terra would stay stable. I mean, there's something beautifully Orwellian about the concept of a stable coin when one cryptocurrency is being 100% backed by another cryptocurrency. You know, it's like pricing your beanie babies in Dutch tulip bubbles, right? Like it's 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 all a bubble. Um, 100% backed and secure doesn't mean anything. It can be backed by gold. It can be backed by real estate. It can be backed by literal beanie babies. It can be backed by Dutch tulip bubbles that are preserved in amber, right? I mean, you can call anything a stablecoin. Stablecoin is an aspirational term. It means we hope that this cryptocurrency has a stable value. But as we've learned in the last six months, it hasn't necessarily had a stable value. Why has that been particularly disruptive to the general ecosystem of crypto, that some of these stablecoins have started to become a little bit volatile? Yes. And again, we should make the distinction between like a fiat based, a fiat collateralized stablecoin, something that's based in a dollar or a basket of global currencies that isn't And that would be like USDC? That's like USDC, which I think also became unpegged for various reasons, but it's oh, not Oh, we're going to as... get to USDC in a second. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get so. there in a minute. Um, and then these idea of sort of algorithmic stablecoins, which rely on smart contracts and other crypto. And that, and that is, and I'm not trying to be ungenerous here, a fiction based on a fiction. So... This is where I should point out, and my my inner Kai Rizdal would say, that even the U.S. dollar is itself a fiction, right? It is based on, the, our trust in the dollar is based on the concept of full faith and credit of the United States of America. And that credit has been hard-earned, but it could go away at any time, in theory. So... Cryptocurrency fundamentally, and the people who are involved in cryptocurrency will tell you that what this really is, and it sounds kind of fuzzy and ridiculous, is a community. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is. They're building the full faith and credit of the cryptocurrency universe. All money is intersubjective. It is only, a dollar is only worth something if you believe 
that is worth something, and I believe it, and I believe that you believe it, right? If we're paying each other, right? It is intersubjective in that sense. So yeah, this is all being held under uh, a much more philosophical um, and pot-addled conversation about the fact that the nature of money is somewhat magical and intersubjective, and it is all a kind of shared fiction, a useful uh -huh. collective hallucination, stipulated. Um, <laughs> Even so, we are dealing with extraordinary fictions based on fictions um, in, in some of these cases. I want to ask about USDC specifically, because USDC, as you said, is not one of these cryptocurrencies that's based on another cryptocurrency, based on another cryptocurrency. It's not one of these sort of infinite regress. It is based on, backed by, theoretically, a reserve of a significant amount of US dollars. Um, the journalist Matt Taibbi, uh, recently looked into the company that owns USDC. I, I, is, is owns the, the right term here, the relationship between uh, uh, Circle and USDC. Maybe just tell me a little bit about what this company is, what USDC is, and what Matt Taibbi figured out. So Circle is the, the a payments company that created this USDC stablecoin that is a dollar-pegged token. And... Uh, I crypto, uh, sorry, Circle also is a, like a lender, you know, because it's a payments company. Um, so it's a holder, it's a lender, it acts a little bit like a bank, where a lot of this, you know, this is a minor tangent, but not really, where a lot of this has fallen apart, and this is a lot of what Matt Taibbi pointed out in this article about Circle and USDC. So on the one hand, there's this token that, according to Circle, is backed by the U.S. dollar, and collateralized by a bunch of holdings that are entirely secure. So you have that. Then you have, in the case of Circle and many other companies uh, in this arena, the desire to do more with the money that they've created, lend it out, earn some interest on it, you know, borrow against it in order to do other things. And what happens is you get this sort of snowball of these companies acting like banks but without any of the oversight, regulation, and transparency of banks. So Matt Taibbi does this big deep dive into Circle, and this is partly as a result of a recent uh, set of stories that came out about Coinbase, where it, <laughs> where it was suggested that in the event of Coinbase going bankrupt, people ha who had put their money in Coinbase wouldn't be able to get it out. Like, what happens if it goes bankrupt? Who are, in fact, the, what is your protection? if your account is wiped out. So savings in traditional banks, commercial and savings banks, are protected by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which means that like 100,000 or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in deposits in these member banks are backed up by federal guarantee, even if the bank fails. But crypto, or decentralized finance, as a part of crypto is sometimes called, is like at least partly about rejecting that very centralization of power. And everything in life has trade-offs, right? Centralization has downsides. But if you reject centralization, right? If you try to create a banking system outside the FDIC, you're in this gray zone when it comes to protected deposits. And so this is what Taibbi wanted to know, right? Do USDC holders bear bankruptcy risks or not? Like, will the reserves be protected or not? And people think they're protected. And I think that fundamentally is the key because a lot of these institutions look like a bank, walk like a bank, and quack like a bank and do not have any of the protections of a bank. So Matt Taibbi compared this to what happened in the run-up to the 2008 
financial collapse where, uh, you know, banking institutions, some ra- <laughs> it's like when it comes to figuring out how to make money, the water finds a way and they always find the way to the lowest ground. So some regulations may have been in, put into place, but around, you know, in the run up to 2008, banks had figured out various increasingly more complex ways to make money, including, let's say, you know, packaging up uh, high risk mortgages and selling them as collateralized debt. Um, something similar has been happening in the case of these big crypto banks. They're doing all of these financialization tools that get increasingly complex and make them a lot of money. And it's not clear what these moves are backed by. So some of them have been accused, Celsius was accused of this thing called rehypothecation, which I'm now obsessed with. And let's just take a, a, a brief beat here. So Celsius is another crypto bank. This was a institution that lived and died on trading crypto assets. Essentially, if I'm a crypto trader, I could store my money with Celsius. They would guarantee a rate of return. And then in the back end, they're making a bunch of extremely risky bets to create a higher rate of return for that bank so that they can guarantee me my high rate of return in response. Celsius makes these trades, it's rolling along, but then all of a sudden, the price of all these cryptocurrencies crashes. There's only so much financial gaming that you can do to get out of the fact that, oh my God, everything that you're invested in is going to zero, or at least is going down by 70%. They, on June 12th, halt withdrawals, withdrawals, how do you pronounce that word? With, withdrawals. With, yeah, with, there you withdrawals. Go. <laughs> <laughs> you pronounce I, I it pronou- with a drawl. I pronounce, I pronounce it like a, like a Southern gentleman from 1940 or something. <laughs> exactly. So on, on, on June 12, you stop being able to take your money out of the bank. Let's put it that way. And then a couple weeks later, it declares bankruptcy. Um, that's Celsius. And Celsius has been just a really critical linchpin in this overall story of the crypto crash. So sorry, that was me taking a beat on Celsius and explain why this story matters to you in the general picture of what's going on in crypto. Yes. And and how it relates to Circle. Because, because Celsius, which we'll explain a little bit more in a minute, is one of the reasons Celsius plus Terra and Luna are are part of the reason that Matt Taibbi started asking these fundamental questions of Circle, which is how is, uh, what is the backing, right? How are your loans backed? How is your stablecoin backed? What happens to people in the event of bankruptcy? Can they get their money back? Super basic questions that have been born out of recent, uh, (laughs) very high profile, very real incidents. And the answers that he got were pretty Vague, nuanced is what he calls them throughout. And he he came away, his conclusion coming away from this story was like, God help anybody who's invested in this, I think was an actual quote from that story. Now, it is important to note that since we talked about that story on This Week in Startups as of July 15th, Circle did issue a, a big, very public report in which it detailed all of its holdings and collateral. All of the, because the the big knock has been that it's non-transparent. These institutions are non-transparent. We have no idea if the collateral for their coins is, you know, Pokemon cards or uh, Solana or dollars. And how different is that from a traditional bank? I mean, how easy is it? They have to tell you. A a traditional traditional bank, bank, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, a traditional bank has to tell you what their holdings are, how how your money is backed. I don't know that they always have to be totally honest about it, but that's the goal. 
I do feel like this is actually really important because Circle has been held up as and USDC have been held up as as pretty good actors in this um, arena. And Circle is so far, I think, one of the only uh, institutions of its size that we know that has, in fact, put out a, a report detailing all of its holdings. So its report shows it no longer holds commercial paper. Um, at some point, it had 9% of its reserves in commercial paper, which is like just a short-term unsecured debt kind of thing, um, has now moved almost completely to cash and U.S. treasuries, detailed the amount of each of those things, $42 billion in U.S. treasury bonds, which again, full faith and credit of the United States, right? That is actually very reassuring. $13.6 billion, the remainder of its reserves are in cash. And then it listed the banks where that cash lives. So right now, there are 55 billion USDC tokens in circulation. And Circle has $55.7 billion in reserves that are held in U.S. treasuries and cash. So like, that's the answer they probably should have given Matt Taibbi. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they might have hired out their engineering team uh, a lot faster than they hired out their communications team because there was, look, let's face it, in 2020 and 2021, a lot of demand for these products and not a lot of people were asking the hard questions. And now suddenly here's the crash and here come the hard questions. And so, you know, they're not exactly sophisticated on the uh, investigative journalist response team. Um, I, I understand that. And I, to be honest, you know, I think that, you know, your um, your podcast partner, Jason Calacanis, who's been on this show, I think that there's a way in which, you know, he might be right about USDC and Circle. You know, the fact that there is fraud somewhere in the crypto community. And I would say there's fraud, you know, in, in more than just somewhere, or uh, at least uh, pure greed in more than just someplace in the crypto community. It doesn't mean that every single product should be painted with the same brush. It, you know, a lot of different people, th tens of thousands of people are trying to build stuff in this space. And you're probably going to have a diversity of ethics, a diversity of success, and a diversity of uh, uh, essentially well-protected and, and well-balanced financing. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write, use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 
I want to move to the future and what this crash says about uh, the future. Uh, how do you think the crypto crash has changed Silicon Valley already, if at all? Well, with the last two crashes in my rear view, I'm going to suggest not at all. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, among other things, we've seen, I think, A16Z raise like another four billion dollars four point five billion four point five or four point six yeah billion dollars for a crypto fund there does not seem to be a huge diminishment in appetite for these projects right away and why is that I mean as someone who has been a bit of a skeptic and definitely felt a little bit of fomo certainly in 2020 and 2021 um why do you think the appetite for crypto investment hasn't diminished given the wipeout to some of these products and to some of these just sort of entire asset classes? Well, because even the wipeout has still left Bitcoin alone. Bitcoin alone remains a trillion dollar asset class. It just recovered that status this week. I mean, we're still talking about a coin. So, you know, back in 2012 or 2011 or something like that, I bought 300 Bitcoin at $1 each. And they were all wiped out in the, you know, this hack of the exchange that I had used. And we're, so we're talking about a, a, a coin that at one time was worth a dollar. Somebody tipped me one, one or tipped me 30 Bitcoin that was at that time worth 18 cents that I didn't even bother to redeem because I'm apparently too stupid to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> because it went from, let's say, 18 cents for 30 to at its peak, $68,000 each. And it's crash is still $19,000 each. Name me another asset in the world that's worth $19,000 each that isn't like a Birkin bag. So there's that. At a minimum, there's that. And then there is the real, there is the reality that this is a new infrastructure and it's not going anywhere. This is a new technology infrastructure. And it it is often compared to the birth of the internet. Time will tell whether that's going to be true, but let's say it's something that's akin to the, the birth of a new banking system. Long term, that's still a massively valuable investment, no matter how you look at it, because it isn't going to go to zero. It's never going to go all the way to zero if there's a trillion dollars invested in it. And if you look at the internet as a corollary, there are still, I still know people, you know, mostly boomers who like won't put their credit card into a website because you can't shop on the internet. It's all scams. Like, not only did I live through the 2001, you know, boom and bust, I'm old enough to remember a time when the internet was for suckers. If you went on the internet, you were getting ripped off. You were going to lose it all. But it did not go to zero. It developed into a huge economic infrastructure that has created trillions and trillions of dollars of value. And so the bet that these VCs are making, and they're probably going to, and for and I should remind everybody, the job of a VC is risky capital. That's your whole job. I think you're totally right that there's a lot of people in the crypto community who think they're akin to the founding of the modern banking system in the mid-1800s. Like these are just a bunch of JP Morgans fighting their way through the railroad crash. And they're not wrong about history. They're just wrong in how they're using history. Like, yes, there was a lot of fraud in rail and a lot of overbuilding and a lot of financial crises, but like modern banking, that was a thing. Railroads turn out to be useful. But I sometimes feel like these sort of, of historical metaphors, like early banks had a bust and then succeeded, or Web2 had a bust and then succeeded. They're very alluring, but they're very unpersuasive when you dig down because they prove too much. They say 
since other things have failed and then succeeded, this failure is actually proof of later success. But there is no discipline to that argument. You can make that argument about literally anything in the world that doesn't work. If I tape my dog's chewy toy to a straw and I say, this device can discover alien life or something like that, and you say, uh, no, it won't. It's a dog toy taped to a straw, dude. It's totally useless. Like I can say things like, well, email used to be useless. Now look at it. The internet used to seem useless. Now look at it. But like, yes, some things succeed after they fail. That doesn't mean that every failure is a portent of future success. Like sometimes things fail because they just don't work. So, <laughs> sorry, that rant uh, has been on my chest for a while, obviously. Uh, but I just think this history metaphor stuff is just way overplayed. I, I um. I can't, I can't believe you're tricking me into de being the crypto defender on your show, but here I go. <laughs> I would say the counter argument to that is that there is a difference between a product and a category. And so if you look at what has succeeded over time, even in metaphor, that a product could come and go, that Bitcoin alone could come and go, a digital token that you use to you know exchange things back and forth that lives on a ledger, that could go away. What we now have is infrastructure, a technology infrastructure for uh, the continued creation of these types of technologies. We have a category that, again, I'm going to remind you as a whole, is worth over $1.5 trillion. <laughs> trillion dollars. With a T, yes. Right? So it's not the George Foreman grill <laughs> here. It's, and that... Pro that when you sort of think in terms of systems, which is I think how venture capitalists try venture capitalists try to think about these type of types of things. Like I'm not interested in one consumer product. I'm interested in a consumer product that somehow becomes or changes a system and becomes a category and ideally becomes like a, a household name in a parlance. And that, and that can be almost infinitely built upon. And so there's no universe in which cryptocurrency, heaven help me, does not check all those boxes. Now I have to go write somebody a damn check. <laughs> exactly. I'm actually, I've actually been sent here by Andreessen Horowitz uh, to convince you that crypto has a future so that you began investing in it. Um, my very last question for you actually is, is about this somewhat you know, more sanguine vision of the future. Give me one discrete case for optimism. If this isn't just a bunch of dog chewy toys taped to straws, and by the way, I don't think it's 100% that either, tell me how this space might evolve other than maybe investors getting a little bit savvier about distinguishing pure bullshit from the more promising long shots. You might also see less investment in these kind of financial institution middlemen like the Coinbase's and the Celsius and the, the Three Arrows Capital because those are basically banks and hedge funds. And so if you're going to invest in that, first of all, if you're really a true believer, that's sort of counter to the spirit. You know, you you saw OpenSea got in all that trouble because it stopped selling certain kinds of NFTs. That's not supposed to happen in crypto. It's supposed to be decentralized with no middlemen. So I suspect you'll see less um, emphasis on the middlemen or you will see a push for more and more regulatory certainty. Because if, if these middlemen have the same regulations as banks, because that's what they are, or hedge funds, then 
they're a safer investment because you know that they're not going to go to zero because they're going to have to tell you upfront how their reserves are held and what happens to your money if they go under. It's just interesting because there's a future in which you can imagine these crypto exchanges or the marketplaces for NFTs like OpenSea, they become more regulated. They become a little bit less risky. They essentially become very similar versions of that which they were meant to replace. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't purely like, you know, the pi- the pigs in Animal Farm starting to walk on two legs and like becoming that which they were trying to um, <laughs> overturn. But like, it's it's a little bit like that, right? It's, it's you, can, you can imagine ways in which they're just the new establishment of finance, the same way that, oh, you know- Oh, for sure. I remember like whatever, like 20 years ago or it must have been 15 years ago, people were talking about, you know, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and all these sort of tech titans are going to totally change the way the companies are run. And we're going to look at Silicon Valley as a totally new model for, you know, bringing on new workers and allowing, you know, full people to come to work. And now, you know, we think about these tech giants in a very similar way that we think to a lot of other legacy companies. They're just all big companies with highly paid employees that do some good work and some disastrous work. And they're all a part of this bundle that's corporate America. And so I just wonder if maybe the uh, ironic future of the upstarts is to become the establishment they seek to overturn. Oh, yeah. I mean, they already have snouts and curly tails. Yeah. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) the, The best way to make money in the history of all time has been banking and financial services. Like there's no universe in which this new money does not evolve into more and more and more banking and financial services. And there will probably be purists and holdouts, just like there are people who are still using Linux and insisting uh, on direct TCP IP connections between computers without, you know, DNS intermediaries. But the truth is that the World Wide Web made the internet work. Yeah. Well, when a bunch of companies came along and made it, you know, prettier and easier to use. Yeah, when the Web3 giants become just like the Web2 giants, uh, I hope that you and I can get together and start a fund to get in on Web4 because that's that's the craze that I really think is going to rise and rise without a peak and fall. I am all in on Web4 and I hope you join me. Apparently it's called Web5 now. That already Excuse is a me. Thing. Oh my They're God. skipping Web4. Yep, I got a guy for you. Yep, the guy who <laughs> runs all of the crypto stuff at Block, formerly Square, recently coined the term Web5. It's all, I, I, it's all I can't. gonna be about identity. I can't. I gotta I, pitch. I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna do the seven it. minute abs thing. We're not gonna go all the way to 10. Uh, we'll end it there. Mollywood, thank you so, so much uh, for breaking this down with us. I really appreciate it. Derek, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you have a comment, a concern, a question, an idea for a future show, please email us at plainenglish at spotify.com. That's plain. No space, English at Spotify.com. Uh-huh.